Father, thank you uh, again for the chance to be together. Thank you for brothers and sisters here and uh, all the churches that are represented. And we thank you. Uh, we do thank you for the brother pastors that are leading the teaching this weekend. Thank you for the uh, the volunteers in our church and others that are serving and, and helping put this on. And uh, But Lord, we confess that we just want to know you more. And uh, in this hour, as we talk about the centrality of the gospel, uh, would you demonstrate for us what we've already said in other ways, but just a particular moment to see that the gospel of Jesus is the only hope for the brokenness and sin and suffering that we experience in life, and that you have been so kind to reveal that gospel to us through Scripture and entrust it to us as local churches uh, to be able to take that message to a world that needs it. So uh, remind us of those things, excite us about those things, and equip us to know how to do that better, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, we know that Paul wrote the uh, letter to the Romans, uh, brand new church there in Rome in the first century. The gospel is going forth from Jerusalem, as uh, Jesus mentioned, and, and the book of Acts demonstrates. And so it's come to the country of Rome, and churches are being established. And so Paul writes here, and, you, and again, you can imagine the, the church is brand new, there, there's no New Testament. Uh, established yet, uh, you know, everybody has questions, and uh, one of the things Paul's going to do in Romans chapter 1, uh, and, and maybe you know Romans, maybe you've read Romans, and, and you've seen this, or you haven't seen this, is one of the things he wants to do is he wants to give a biblical perspective on why the world is the way it is, and connect that back to our need for the gospel, so, so let me demonstrate this for you, uh, look at chapter 1, after he introduces himself and talks about uh, some prayers and thankfulness that he had for the reports he was getting from the Roman Christians, he says this in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So, so Paul is claiming here that the gospel message, that this message of Jesus who has come and lived and died and rose again to offer atonement for sin, uh, a means of reconciliation to God, the only means of reconciliation to God, he is claiming here that the gospel is the power of God to do that work. And you say, that's great. I heard that in Sunday school one time. I read that in a gospel track. What on earth does that have to do with the problems I face in life. We, we can do that, can't we? We can kind of dichotomize. We, we can separate our, our church life and, you know, what pastor was preaching about and, you know, what we prayed about in Sunday school with the ordinary problems of, of parenting and, and marriage and relationships in the office and personal sin struggles and, and uh, you know, cancer and medical issues and all. We, we can separate that. And sometimes it's hard to know how do we take Christianity and connect it to the normal, ordinary struggles of life. So Paul says the, the gospel here is the power of God for salvation. Now, now, watch what he does. Now look at the very end of the chapter, the very end of Romans chapter 1, and look with me at verse 29. Uh, and I'm going to jump into the middle of a sentence, okay? So I know, what I'm, uh, I know I'm doing that. <laughs> so I'll back it up in a minute. But 129, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, 
greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and even though they might know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And we say, wow, that's quite a list. What does that list represent? What do you see? What's that? The heart of man? The heart of man? Yeah. Fallen man? All of us? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like real life, doesn't it? You know, every day we're going to struggle with things like gossip and, and uh, not being loving and struggling with, to obey our parents and, and uh, considering others as more important. And, and every day we're going we're gonna, to, if we turn that around and say, well, I might, be, I might not be the one doing those things, but I'm the recipient of those things. I'm suffering under the bad things that other people are doing and how they're living. That list represents what we call normal life. That, that's, we could call it life problems. Or, if you allow me to do this, we could call that counseling problems. And so you say, well, how does that list connect with the gospel? Well, if you back up, why do people do that? Why are they filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, etc., etc.? How, do, how does humanity end up there? Well, if you back up to the middle of the chapter... Uh, you're supposed to kind of go through the chapter chronologically. I'm jumping around. But if you go back to the middle of the chapter and look at verse 25, this is why humanity is the way it is, what we call life problems, counseling problems, brokenness in the world, suffering and sin. Why is humanity like that? Well, Paul explains it in verse 25, that in our sin, all people do this. Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I'd love to teach the whole chapter to you. We don't have time. But that's, that, that, that statement right there is the central reason why Humanity is the way it is. It's why we struggle with what we struggle with. It's why that list at verse, verses 25 and following, 29 and following is really indicative of all people. Because, because of sin, when we come into the world, we don't worship and serve the Lord who made us. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve something else instead of God. We, we are proficient at God replacements. And you can just look around the world, uh, you can look in your own heart, you can look in your own kitchen, you can look in your own family, you can look in your own church, and we can all see what are the things we're wrapping our life around and giving those things a love and allegiance and trust that is supposed to be reserved for God alone. And when we worship something else instead of the God who made us, that sets us on a course of all ungodliness and sin and suffering represented, represented by the list that we read there at the end of the chapter. You say, why am I telling you all this? Every life problem that you and I experience at its core is a worship problem. That's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying what we see out there, what we see in here that's a problem, we can trace it back 
to worshiping and serving something else other than God. That's his argument here. And if all of life problems are really worship problems, or we might call them worship disorders, if that's really true, if that's the root of humanity's problem, then what solution might be adequate to rescue us from that worship problem? And that's why we go back to the verse we read a minute ago in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. See, what we think of as life problems are really just symptoms of our greatest problem. And that is that we have rejected our Creator. We've gone our own way. We're worshiping and serving the creature instead of the Creator. We're making up the rules as we go. We don't submit to God. We don't listen to His Word. And, and we do life on our own. And that leads to all of these challenges here. Again, it might be challenges where we're committing sin or it might be the suffering we experience because others are committing sin. But regardless, that... that those life problems are just a symptom of our greatest problem, which is this worship issue, which can only be resolved, Paul argues here, through the personal work of Christ in the message of the gospel. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So if you're tracking with what he's saying here, that, that puts right in front of us, if we think about, man, how do I deal with these problems in my life? Or how do I come alongside and help someone else with these problems? That makes the gospel the main thing. Because only the gospel addresses the worship disorder, and only the worship disorder being fixed addresses all these other problems downstream that we see that we call life problems. Okay. Now we can go after the life problems. We can talk about, well, let's communicate in your marriage a little better. Let's learn some conflict resolution. You know, let's learn some strategies for dealing with your addiction or your obsessive thinking. You can do that. But if you don't address the root of the problem, the worship issue that's driving all those other things, you ultimately don't help that person. And, and those solutions, while well intended, fall short. Because, brothers and sisters, what God is looking for is not just cleaning up our behavior. What He's going to uh, demonstrate is the solution. We see it in Romans and other passages. Is We don't just need behavior change. We need heart change. We need worship transformation. And only Jesus can do that for you and me. Okay, I'm getting riled up a little bit. But anyway, you see how this works. The gospel is the issue. So if you're with me then, when we think about the gospel and biblical counseling or the gospel and discipleship, the gospel and ministry to others, we have to recognize two things. That the gospel is both the heart and the hub of biblical counseling. The heart and the hub of biblical counseling. Okay? And uh, I'm going to kind of go faster and slower through some parts of this. Uh, and um, but but it's all it's all there for you there. So, what do we mean when we say that the gospel is the heart of biblical counseling or discipling or growing in uh, our walk with God? Of course, we understand when I'm saying counseling, I'm not talking about some professional clinical thing. I'm just saying coming alongside another brother or sister in Christ and helping them to grow in the context of their challenges. Um, but that makes sense, right? You, you can't truly disciple a non-disciple. You can't truly counsel an unbeliever because counseling in the Bible is just a form of discipleship and a discipleship assumes that there is some sort of initial commitment to Christ in salvation. Now, uh, if you're in Romans, just flip the page uh, a couple of pages to the right to Romans chapter 8. I just want to demonstrate for you why 
the gospel is absolutely essential as the heart of biblical counseling and discipleship, right? You can't truly help someone apart from the grace of Jesus transforming their heart, first of all, in conversion, in salvation. And and just, just think about this with me. An unbeliever, right? And we're not here to pick on unbelievers. We're just saying that they're in a spiritual state that the Bible says is spiritually dead. Okay? And if we're going to help people that don't know Christ, the first step of that is to lead them to trust Christ as Lord and Savior. And you say, why is that critical for counseling? Well, first of all, because an unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you're there, uh, Paul writing in context about the Spirit and the flesh, he says this, verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's really helpful. Uh, Paul is saying here, a Christian is somebody who has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. That, that third person of the Trinity who is given as a gift when we repent and trust Christ as Lord and Savior, God grants that gift of the Holy Spirit to reside in us. And you say, well, that sounds really neat. What does that do with counseling? The Holy Spirit is the agent of transformation and change in you and I. The, the, the only reason that you and I have any uh, hope of growing and changing in Christ is because of the Spirit is at work in us, convicting and transforming and working in us. And again, if we're, if we're thinking about transformation, heart transformation with somebody we're trying to help in the context of counseling, if they lack the agent of change, we might be able to you know, give them some encouragement and some tools, but fundamentally they, they cannot change from the heart apart from the Spirit of Christ. Uh, secondly, the unbeliever does not have a new heart. Uh, we, we won't turn there, but in Ezekiel 36, uh, that, that passage describes uh, what we call the new covenant. That's the gospel as it's described in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you exactly what Ezekiel's going to say. He's going to say, in that new covenant, in the gospel, here's what God's going to do. He's going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh, uh, and He's going to give you a heart of Flesh. He's going to give you His very Spirit and cause you to walk in His ways. And you say, that, what does that mean? When He talks about a new heart, He's not talking about the, that muscle, that organ that you and I have that pumps the blood in our body. When He talks about heart in the context of the Bible, that's saying God is going to transform that most personal spiritual part of you. He's going to take you from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. He's going to give you a new spiritual heart that is set on walking with God and seeking to grow and follow Him. And unbelievers don't have that new heart. They don't have that spiritual capability yet until they come to Christ in the Gospel. Again, if you're in Romans, if you back up to chapter 5, verse 10, uh, Paul reminds his readers there in chapter 5, Uh, verse 10 he says this for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life and and the indictment here is just a, a, a subtle reminder that before conversion we were God's enemies we were as Ephesians says children deserving of wrath 
If we flip the page to chapter 6 in Romans, uh, Paul's going to describe in the context, again, we don't have time to read it all, but essentially his argument is going to be, if you have trusted in Christ, you are united with him in his death and burial and resurrection. And the end result, we'll just look at, we'll look at the result of this in chapter 6, verse 6. He says this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, look at this, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. What he's saying is, when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, God unites us to His Son. And we participate in in some spiritual way in Christ's death and burial and resurrection with the end result that the believer is freed from slavery to sin so that now we can actually walk in newness of life. And he's going to spend the rest of the chapter saying, if that's true, don't keep living the old way. Start living in conformity to the instructions of God in in a way that pleases Him now that Christ has freed you. So you see... This is why the gospel is the heart of change and the heart of biblical counseling because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't have a new heart, if you're still God's enemy, if you lack the power to change, uh, being united to Christ, you're not going to get very far in trying to grow. Uh, Just a few more here, and you you can look these up later on. I wanted to try to give you uh, some comprehensive uh, uh, thinking here, but just think with me. You guys know this. An unbeliever lacks the right motivation and desire to change. Romans chapter 3 says there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seek after God. There's none who does good. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Keith, wait a minute. I know some really nice unbelievers. They're my neighbors. They're my coworkers. Uh, I have them at school. And that's true, right? right? There are wonderful unbelievers out there. They're, they're wonderful, charitable, kind, um, gracious, giving. You know that, right? And, and I have wonderful, unbelieving friends like you do too. And, and when the Bible is using this language, it's not saying unbelievers are, are you know, horrible people or they, don't, they are not capable of good things. What, what, it, what it's saying is, In their spiritual capacity, in their spiritual heart, they do not seek God as their Lord and Creator and Savior. And thus they do not have a capacity to do good from the heart as a means of glorifying God, empowered by Him to do that. Okay, so we're not saying they're, they're all bad and they're not capable of nice things, but just that they're spiritually dead and thus incapable of following God and doing good as, as God would define it. Uh, we understand, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Uh, meaning an unbeliever lacks the, the spiritual equipment because of a lack of conversion to really... Um, to really follow God and, and understand the truth. Not, not like understand, like intellectually understand the gospel, but understand in the sense of agreeing that this is the Word of God and the transformation that's possible as we spend time in the Word. Uh, again, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, uh, he describes unbelievers as spiritually blind and deaf. Right? They don't, they don't see it. They, they, and you know this, right? You have unbelieving friends like I do, and you've shared the gospel... You, you shared with them life, forgiveness, transformation, reconciliation with God. These, these lofty, grand, amazing messages that come in the personal work of Christ. You, you've poured that out to your unbelieving friends like I have. And they go, oh, what's for lunch? 
Oh, you know, are you watching the cowboy game this weekend? It's like, it's, it's like they can't see because they can't. And I remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they are spiritually blind and deaf, but the same God that said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens. That same God that called light out of darkness is able to cause the spiritually blind to see. And that's why we don't give up hope, because our God can do the miracle of regeneration, allowing people that are spiritually blind and deaf to spiritually see and hear. And, and, uh, and that's the point here, right? An unbeliever does not see his need for a Savior. And thus, an unbeliever needs the gospel. Sometimes we call this pre-counseling. Uh, and don't, don't misunderstand that. Pre-counseling doesn't mean, no, I'm sorry, I won't meet with you until you become a Christian, so go just become a Christian and then come on back. That, that's not what we mean by pre-counseling. Well, it, well, and sometimes people hear that and that's what they think. Pre-counseling just means if, if I have somebody that comes to our counseling ministry here or you know somebody in the community and, and I sit down, I'm, I'm on an airplane, I'm talking to somebody here and they, don't, they need Jesus, right? What that, what that means, pre-counseling means is before I can really get to the mechanics of helping them to grow and change, I need to help them to see that their problem that they're struggling with is really just a symptom of that greater problem, that vertical problem. Uh, one way we, we think about it is um, all horizontal problems that we have, like people, you know, me, you, all, all those horizontal problems really come from that vertical relationship, doesn't it? And until, until that vertical relationship with God is mended in the gospel, then I don't have the means and capability to address these horizontal issues that I'm struggling with. So that's what we mean by pre-counseling. And, and I'll give you an example here in a minute, but uh, the point is... Um, we, we can't say, oh, let's fix your marriage. Let's talk about your addiction. Let, let's, uh, you know, give you. We, we can't get there until we've helped them to understand that their problem is really a worship issue, and that is resolved only in the person and work of Christ, and, and invite them to make that trusting relationship with Jesus. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, when I was um, uh, years ago, when I was in, in seminary and learning biblical counseling for the first time, there was a a Christian counseling radio show. And I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's not around anymore. This is back home on the West Coast. And, uh, and people would call in, and there were a couple of Christian counselors that would take the calls, and, um, and they would, you know, give Christian solutions. And, and I remember one time this, this guy called in, and he's describing it was a spouse or a friend or something. And I'm listening, I'm driving in my car, I'm listening. And, and I'm like, uh, this person cannot be a Christian, given the description. I mean, just, you know, not professing Christ, not claiming to be Christ. Uh, not claiming to be a Christian, um, you know, they were living like non-Christians live, and uh, and then these Christian counselor radio hosts were, you know, launched into some answers, and they and they gave some good answers, but uh, you know, I, I heard this and I'm going, well, wait a minute, um, if this guy's not a Christian, I mean, you can pursue those solutions, but he's spiritually dead, he's still spiritually lost, he's still spiritually blind and deaf, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't have conversion, uh, he's dead spiritually, he's by nature a children. You can do that, but that's not going to help him. And, and as I listened to this show on, on somewhat of a regular basis, I recognized that that was a theme, that, that the gospel was not a part of that Christian counseling system. And, uh, and it's like, well, 
if, if, we don't, if we don't share the gospel with them, we, we can throw a whole bunch of other stuff at them, but if they don't hear the gospel, we're not truly helping people. Right? Because that's what they need. That's what I need. That's what you need. The gospel must be central in terms of helping people to actually deal with those problems. And, and you know, we understand this, right? As, as Christians, that's why we're here. Whether we're doing formal counseling or not, whether we're just hanging out with our, our kids' soccer team, you know, some moms and dads on Saturday morning, whether it's a person at the office, it's a family member that we see at Thanksgiving, you know, whatever those relationships are like, if they're unbelievers, the reason we're here, the, the commission of God for us as Christians is what? Go into all the world and make disciples. Share the gospel. Um, a, a, a Christian, the, the, the reason we're here, guys, uh, we're here to share the gospel with people in need. And uh, our, our experience here, we, we have a, some of you know this, um, our church right here in Granbury has a free community counseling ministry. So anybody in our community can come here for free counseling. Uh, we have 15 ACBC certified counselors here that give of their time each week to do that free counseling uh, we, we care for one another in the church, and then we give. Uh, we want to bless our community by giving some of those hours to our community. Um, always, always, always have had a waiting list. We don't advertise. People just come. And, and we have found that our free biblical counseling ministry has been one of the best opportunities to share the gospel with our neighbors. Um, we didn't set it up as like, hey, here's our new evangelism strategy, right? But, but that's what it is. Because people want to come and talk about their marriage and talk about their kids and talk about their addiction and talk about their obsessive compulsive uh, thinking and behavior. And, and we sit down and say, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear you're struggling and you're suffering. And you know, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. Or my name's Bob. I'm one of the counselor staff here. And uh, we'd love to come alongside and help you. We would love to do that. And the way we're going to do that is we want you to see that what you're struggling with is actually the symptom of a greater issue. And we want to help you to know how you can be reconciled to the God who made you for a friendship with Him. And that as we come to have that relationship repaired and reconciled and learn to walk with this God, He provides us with resources and perspective and wisdom and insight to be able to deal with these heavy life struggles that you're facing. What do you think? And that, that's how we counsel them. Um, connecting the gospel to whatever the challenges are that they're facing. Okay, so that's what we mean when we say the gospel is the heart of counseling, right? You can't really help an unbeliever in any significant sense, okay? Now, we're going to love them, care for them. We're gonna, that doesn't mean, you know, if they, if they don't ever convert that we... we Take our hands off and say, too bad. We're going to love them and care for them as much as we can, but centered on their need for Christ and the gospel. And that, that's what that's leading the charge in our effort there. Secondly, the gospel is not just the heart of biblical counseling. It's the hub of biblical counseling. And what we mean by that is all true change and growth is connected to and depends upon the gospel. Now, if you're still in Romans, just turn the page to the right to Galatians chapter 2. Or, or excuse me... Um, Let's see. Actually, let's go back to that passage in Ezekiel I told you about because that's the dustier part of your Bible that we can uh, clean up today. Can you find Ezekiel? Go to the middle of your Bible 
Uh, you probably end up in the book of Psalms somewhere in there. Just turn to the right till you get to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. To Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel is one of the weirdest books in the Bible, if we're honest. There are visions, there are uh, prophecies here, but, but don't, don't let that scare you away because Ezekiel's message to the nation of Israel as they were um, being threatened with captivity, God's discipline because of their disobedience and their idolatry, Ezekiel has some of the most beautiful pictures of gospel hope in your whole Bible. Um, so as you're turning to Ezekiel 36, um, we, we know that uh, a believer's union with Christ is the connection point. We talked about this in Romans 6 a moment ago. Uh, you know Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, what Paul is arguing there is that as, as people turn to Christ in repentance and faith, uh, their, their old self dies, and they are raised to walk a newness of life. Like we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is a believer's identity. And in that new identity and the resources God gives us, that makes change possible. Uh, I mentioned Ezekiel 36. I quoted it to you a moment ago. Now I want you to put your eyes on it. In chapter 36, we'll pick it up in verse... Uh, let's see, what are we going to do? Um, let's look at 25. This is uh, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, describing the new covenant, this new arrangement that God is bringing uh, God, uh, God speaking through Ezekiel says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, verse 25, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. You say, why, why idols? Remember, every problem is what? A worship disorder. And so the gospel is fundamentally addressing that worship problem, that worship disorder. In the Bible, that's called idolatry. And remember, as you, as you have learned and will learn this weekend, idolatry does, just doesn't mean I've got a Buddha in my bathroom that I worship. That's not what it means. Idolatry is when you or I replace God with anything in life. We love, trust, serve, listen to, or are loyal to something or someone other than King Jesus. And idolatry is the issue. And that's why the, this passage is so encouraging because Ezekiel, God speaking through Ezekiel says, uh, I'm going to cleanse you from that. I'm going to solve that and fix that, cleansing you from all your filthiness and all your idols. How are we going to do that? Verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You say, that's great. He's talking to the nation of Israel. We understand as that ter- goes into the New Testament that, that all people who turn from sin to trust Christ uh, are beneficiaries of these spiritual blessings talked about in the New Covenant. And we know that because the New Testament is going to address these realities as benefits that come to all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. But that tells us that new heart, that, that new spirit, that Holy Spirit that is given to us, those are the provisions of change. He mentions there the Holy Spirit. We looked at Romans 8. That's a cross-reference here. Uh, Ezekiel talks about God putting His Spirit within the person. Uh, Paul talks about that same thing in Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, so we have, again, these provisions of change, union with Christ, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, 
and a motivation really to holy living. Um, uh, Paul's going to tell the Philippians, um, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning, a, a Christian is somebody that has an internal desire to be like Christ. To grow and change. We saw that here in Ezekiel, right? God says, I'm going to put that new heart in you. And that new heart is going to prompt you toward godliness and and toward uh, being more like Christ in that. So those provisions of the gospel are necessary for growth and change. In other words, the gospel is central in both conversion and in sanctification. Conversion meaning when we first trust Christ and sanctification how we grow in Christ. Okay? So, now what does the gospel look like in the practice of counseling? In the actual practice of counseling? Well, one of the first things we have to do, whether it's formal counseling or informal counseling, you're talking with somebody at Starbucks, you're sitting on an airplane, you're talking to a mom at the soccer game where your kids are playing on the field, and you engage in conversation. One of the things you want to do is try to assess, does this person know Jesus Christ? And uh, in... in in formal counseling, we do that through PDIs, or that's one of our intake paperwork, uh, a brief life history. We might ask the person, hey, I'd love to get to know you. Um, would you be able to, to just write out a page or two, a brief life history? To introduce yourself to me. Uh, as you write your story, I'd love to hear about the people and circumstances that have sort of made you the person you are today. So we can use intake paperwork to do that. We can ask about their life history. That's interesting. If we're listening to the life history, and we don't hear about Jesus, we don't hear about the gospel, that's telling, isn't it? You know, a Christian is somebody where Jesus and his work is the center point of their story of life, isn't it? Listen to testimony after testimony in the book of Acts, in church history. You hear it when we do baptisms in our local church and a person tells about their conversion. Jesus For a true Christian, Jesus is always the center of their life story. So when you're hearing somebody's story, you're listening. And if Jesus is not a part of that story, or if he's sort of an accessory to the story, that should make you want to get some more information about that person's spiritual condition. Sometimes we use a document called the Spiritual Convictions Questionnaire. These are documents that uh, we we can make available to you. Uh, Some of them are in your notes there. Uh, Some of them um, are not. Uh, the The Spiritual Convictions Questionnaire... Uh, comes from some material by Wayne Mack. Uh, we can do it. Uh, how many? How many of you did evangelism explosion back in the day? Okay, you, you know EE. Remember the 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 sort of two EE questions uh, about um, you know if you were to stand before God and He would ask you why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Um, you know questions like that. So we can ask uh, direct questions like that and just kind of hear what people say. Uh, homework assignments in counseling. We, we might ask them to read a gospel track and come back and be ready to interact about it. We might ask them to write, if they claim to be a Christian, ask them to write out their conversion story and then bring it back and then you discuss it together. So these are all ways that we can try to assess the counselee's relationship to the gospel. Um, the other thing to remember is that sometimes you just need time to do that. Uh, remember Jesus uh, told a parable about the sower and the soils. And... Uh, Three of the four soils looked really, really encouraging. And then two of those three ended up withering and dying before they produced fruit, right? So sometimes we need to remember that we simply need time to be able to better assess a person's 
uh, relationship to Christ. And I put a footnote here about Bible Belt Christians. I don't know what it's like where you live. Here in Granbury, we are sort of like the Bible Belt holdout here in North Texas. It's still very sort of Christian culturally. Culture-y? Is that a word? It's like a Christian culture. And you say, what's that? It means um, uh, I drink sweet tea, I say y'all, I root for the cowboys, and I go to church, I'm a Christian. Because that's what you do. And yet we have found, especially in our counseling ministry, that there are a lot of people that come to our counseling ministry that are cultural Christians but not biblical Christians. In other words, they might be churchgoers, they might know something of God and the gospel, but Jesus and a trust relationship with Him is not driving their life the way the Bible teaches that true conversion actually is. So, um, again, you have to know your community, your neighborhood well, but just recognize uh, I came from a very different culture. I grew up in the big city that was very secular and atheistic, and so I had to learn kind of how do things work in the Bible Belt. Um, so be wise about that based on your community. The second thing we want to do when we think about the gospel and biblical counseling is not just assess the counseling's relationship to the gospel, but we want to present the gospel clearly to every counselee. And we can do that. Um, the gospel in context is a way to do that. I think there's a footnote there in your notes. Uh, Stuart Scott, one of our friends uh, who has taught here for many years, uh, he's developed a, a website called The Gospel in Context. Uh, in fact, you can just Google Stuart Scott, Gospel in Context, and um, uh, th- that material is available. Um, and, and, you know, th- this idea of presenting the gospel clearly to every counselee, um, I'm not sure why this is, but there is a uh, there, there is a trend in Christian counseling at large that for some reason is reluctant at times to share the gospel with clients or counselees. And um, that burdens me because we as believers are commanded by God to go into all the world and share the gospel. That's why we've been commissioned to do that. that that's our role here. Uh, it's the duty of every Christian counselor to present, every Christian counselor, every Christian period, but certainly Christian counselors, to present the gospel to people. Now, now there might be a, a, a wise way to do that. There might be strategy, you know, based on your place of employment or whatnot. I mean, you, be, be smart about it, okay? Don't, don't be reckless. But we, we have to agree that the Great Commission applies to all of us. And therefore, we must present the gospel uh, to people. And, and uh, no true believer in Jesus would ever withhold the gospel in somebody in need, right? Do you agree with that? No true Christian would ever withhold the gospel from somebody that clearly has need of it. Because eternity weighs in the balance based on their commitment or lack of it to Christ. And especially a hurting person who needs Jesus. And, um, and again, that, that's one of the joys of, I think, uh, viewing, um, embracing the, the call of a local church to be a culture of discipleship and taking that message to your community. And, and you don't have to have a formal community counseling ministry. That'd be a great thing to do. But just, you know, we ought to be thinking about our community saying, how do we help people who need Christ to come to know Him? And if we can engage in conversations about life problems to get them to Christ, well, we should do that. But no true believer in Jesus would ever withhold the gospel from any hurting person who needs Jesus. Right? That's, that's very, very clear. So we want to make a comprehensive um, gospel 
uh, presentation to them. It should be clear. Uh, you say, you say how, how clear should it be? Well, clear enough that there is a convicting call related to that. You say, what's a convicting call? Um, the gospel never goes like this in the Bible. You know, Jesus died on the cross and rose again for your sins, and I just want to let you know that. The, the gospel, when we read it, where Jesus presents the gospel, where the apostles present the gospel, when the early church presents the gospel, we see this into church history. It's always, this is what God has done, this is your condition, this is what Christ has done, and then what? There's a call. There's a, there's a, um, an, we can call it an invitation. We, we can call it a, uh, a mandate. We can say, you must trust Christ. That's your hope. That, that's your only, that's your only shot. Uh, will you turn from sin and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior? We don't just give them the information and say, you know, have a nice life. We give them the information and we, and we invite them to turn from sin and trust in Christ. There must be a convicting call or invitation or admonition, uh, to turn and trust Christ. The gospel calls for a response. And one of the challenges of, of Christian culture is that the Christian culture, at least in our community here, it's one of information but not transformation. Does that make sense? They know some stuff about the gospel and about the Bible, but it's not doing anything. It's not driving their life. And I think it's because one, one of the things that we, we misunderstand sometimes is that the gospel is just knowing stuff. It's not about actually trusting in Christ and letting His life and work then lead and transform and motivate what we do. Um, so let's talk about clarifying the components of the gospel. And um, uh, don't get up right now. Don't get up right now. But when I'm done, there are some handouts in the back that have these pictures on them. Okay. When I am sharing the gospel in the context of counseling. Now just hang on to them. Just hang on to them. Um, well, do you want them now? Okay, they want them now. All right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I thought of this too late, but Rob and Lacey will have these for you here. Whenever I do this, um, people always get out, I mean, like, you know, a hundred phones staring at the screen. So I'd figure I'd just give you the pictures. Okay. Whenever I share the gospel in the context of counseling, or actually, this actually started sharing the gospel with my children when they were very young. And, you know, you're hearing these words, right? Wrath and justification and redemption. And you're going, ah, there's all these $100 theological words, and I don't know what they mean. And so one of the things I try to do in the context of counseling is present the gospel in a way that clarifies those components. So what you have in front of you or what you're getting there, and what I'm going to show you on the screen is one of the ways I do that. And what I explain is, look, the gospel is about God is going to... The gospel is about... God's provision to solve the four problems that all people have. And those problems are wrath, guilt, bondage, and separation. Okay? And I'm just going to give you a couple of these and then you can look at the notes. Uh, so let me, let's just talk about wrath, okay? What is wrath? Wrath is God's good and right judgment of people for their sin. Wrath is God's good and right judgment of people for their sin. And in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul writes this, Romans chapter 2, verse uh, 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness, 
and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each person according to his deeds. What's he saying? That that, um, the more human beings rebel against God, the more judgment or the more wrath is stored up, Paul says, for this coming day in the future called the day of wrath. And and that time, that, that wrath will be poured out on the day of wrath and the day of judgment. And the way we picture this, when I'm... And these pictures just represent little doodles that I do on my whiteboard in the office. I'm just kind of drawing stick figures and making the... But the Bible describes the wrath of God as being stored up like a cup. And the more people rebel against God, the more wrath is stored up for that day of judgment. And one day, the Bible says that cup will be poured out on people on that day of judgment. They they will drink the cup of their own wrath. And you can find imagery and language that the book of Revelation uses to describe this. Paul describes it here in Romans chapter 2. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, chapter 2, verse 5. And that's not good, is it? Because one day we will all be recipients... Of the, of the righteous wrath and judgment of God because we have rebelled against His law. We have, we have denied Him. And we will spend all of eternity apart from Christ with that wrath being poured out in eternal judgment. That's not good. That, that's our first problem is wrath. You say, what, what did Jesus do to solve that problem? Well, flip the page over to Romans chapter 3 and look with me at verse 22. No, 24. Being justified as a gift, Jesus, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. You say, what's propitiation? That's hard to even say, let alone understand. What's propitiation? Well, when I was explaining this to my kids, the way I described it is it's a sponge. Propitiation is a sponge Sacrifice. You say, what does that mean? Jesus died on the cross to absorb and thus satisfy the wrath of God so that it doesn't fall on me. If you will, propitiation is a sponge sacrifice. At least that's the way I translated it to my four-year-old back then. Okay? That's propitiation. Now, does that make sense to you? Do you think you could explain that to somebody and say, you have this problem of wrath because you and I rebel against the law of God where we have judgment that's coming on us. It's like a cup being stored up. And one day we'll have to drink the cup of God's wrath for all of eternity. Or or Jesus comes and God pours out His wrath on His Son instead of you and me. And Jesus absorbs and thus satisfies the wrath of God. That's propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs and thus satisfies the wrath of God uh, before him. Okay? That's propitiation, and we can just call that propitiated, right? Because it. Okay, are you with me? So, that, so picture, I'm in my office, I got my whiteboard, I'm drawing stick figures, doing this. Uh, I had a dear brother, I did this at a conference years ago, and he was an artist, and so he put this together uh, in a more artistic uh, fashion. Okay? Let's do another one. That's called propitiation. Uh, if we change the scenery now, And we think about another one of the problems. Remember, uh, all people have four problems. Wrath, guilt, bondage, and separation. And uh, the second one is guilt. 
the, the scenery here, the, the context of understanding guilt, guilt in the Bible is not a feeling. Did you know that? Guilty feelings are the result of your conscience condemning you. That's, that's where guilty feelings come from. But when the Bible talks about guilt, it's talking about legal culpability. You know, if I blow down the highway here at 80 miles an hour and uh, Granbury PD pulls me over and cites me a ticket and I have to go stand in the courthouse, I am objectively guilty of breaking a law of our city here, right? I, I am legally culpable. That's what the Bible means when it talks about guilt. It's not a feeling. It's a legal culpability. And the Bible says, uh, for example, in James chapter 2, that if you keep the whole law, if you keep all of God's instructions, but you break one of them, what happens? You're guilty of the whole thing, right? Because we are law breakers in our fallenness and sin. And God who sits and presides over the highest court, the court of his own law and instructions, is going to pronounce you and I guilty and rightly so as lawbreakers. We'd all agree with that, right? So we, we have this problem of guilt. You say, well, what did Jesus do to fix that? Well, he came and lived a perfectly righteous life, fully obeying the instructions of God, right? He, he lived that perfect life, and then he died on a cross to pay for sins of people. And, and here's how this works. What if... What if my sin and what I deserve, because I am guilty, right? You're guilty, I'm guilty. What if my sin and what I deserve could actually be removed from my account and transferred to Jesus' account so that he stands in my place in the court, right? And what if his perfect life of righteousness could be credited or transferred to my account so that the merits of his perfect life now apply to me. Are you with me? So Jesus gets my sin and what my sins deserve. I get his righteousness that he earned. And now I stand before the court of God and God looks down at me. Can God, without denying his justice, pronounce the sinner who has received the righteousness of God and whose sin has been removed and put on Christ, he pays for it. Can God pronounce that person not guilty? The answer is yes, he can. You know this, right? Second Corinthians, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians have a term for this. It's called substitution, right? Christ takes my place. He's my substitute. I get his righteousness. He gets my sin. And as a result, without denying his justice, God can pound the gavel of the courtroom of heaven and say, not guilty, but righteous. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of his son. And we know that people access this work of Christ through faith alone. Right? Faith is the, is the conduit by which we access the perfect righteousness of Christ and our sin is transferred to him. Now, now what, what's, what's it called when, Jesus, when, when God pronounces the sinner who's trusting in Jesus not guilty but righteous because of Christ's work? What's that called? Justification. See, justification is a legal term, right? That's what that refers to. You get the idea? You can do this. You can do this, but you have to know the gospel. And uh, so you can look at those other pictures there and kind of see how it works. I've got one for bondage, right? Bondage just means that we're a slave to sin. In the work of Christ, He redeems us. We call that redemption. 
Right? Redemption is when we are freed from the bondage of sin. Romans chapter 6. And all of that is to address the main problem, the, the main problem of humanity, that worship disorder, results in us being separate from God. And we know that in the gospel, He is... Uh, working reconciliation. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to Himself. So you can use little pictures like this to help you to explain the components of the Gospel. Does that make sense? And um, so use that if that's helpful. But the point is, you have to know the Gospel well enough to explain it in language that your five-year-old can understand. Don't water it down Explain it in language that normal people can understand, non-church people. They, they don't understand justification, propitiation. You have to explain those terms to them. Okay? So connect the gospel. Um, we're gonna, what are we going to do in counseling? We're going to assess the counseling's spiritual condition. We're going to clarify the gospel. We're going to teach the gospel. We're going to explain the gospel. We're going to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And, you know, one way that we can utilize the gospel in counseling... Um, is to connect the gospel to the presentation problem of people. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one time a uh, young man in his teens came to me, and this is what I learned in the first session. He had attempted suicide. He was fornicating with his girlfriend. He had issues with alcohol. He had recently lost his job. He was struggling with depression, maybe not surprisingly. Uh, he had a series of broken relationships. He had recently become hostile with his parents, and they were kicking him out of his uh, of staying with them, the girlfriend that he was fornicating with became pregnant and was comp- contemplating an abortion. He lost the housing because of the thing with the parents, and I think he was using K2 or some sort of synthetic drug. That's one session. Now I don't know about you. I look at that and I go, "Where do you start?" Well, here, here's what I told him. I asked him. I said, "Well, what what do all those things have in common?" And he said, they're all my problems. I said, well, I know that. I know that. But what do those things have in, problem, have in common? And uh, I don't know. And I said, would you agree with me that in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to deal with any of that? But all of those things that are true in your life, things you've done that are wrong and things that are wrongs done to you, that wouldn't happen if the world was perfect. Would you agree with me on that? He said, yeah, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have any of that. So I asked him, why do you think the world isn't perfect? Why don't, we li- why don't we live in a beautiful, good, perfect world where this do- doesn't happen? And he said, that's a good question, Pastor Keith. I don't know. And I said, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and let's talk about how the perfect world went wrong. And from that standpoint, I introduced him to God created him. We rebelled as sinful people. And from Genesis 3 on, God started a process, a, a, a working out of a redemption, a salvation plan to save us from, or, or to rescue us and bring us back into reconciliation with God and to address things like this. See, all counseling problems, you, you can put all counseling problems in two buckets, two Homer buckets from Home Depot, okay? And that is... Every problem your counseling is going to face is a problem of sin or a problem of suffering. Right? Sin means they're breaking God's instructions. Uh, uh, suffering means there's something in life that hurts. Someone sins against them. It's a broken world. right? It's cancer. It's an accident. You can take any counseling problem and put it in one of those two buckets. That, that's how you organize 
That's how you organize that, because that's overwhelming. But see, you can take all of that and put it in one of those two buckets. And you can see Jesus came to address both sin and suffering, didn't he? We understand sin, right? He came to reconcile us to God by making uh, atonement for sin to uh, save us, forgive us, and bring us back into relationship with God. He also came to address the suffering, didn't he? Isaiah says, our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. So both sin and suffering are issues that are resolved in the person and work of Christ. So as you're, as you're listening to the story, as you're walking with somebody, and you've got all these symptoms... Organize them. Put them in a bucket of sin, a bucket of suffering, and then help your person who doesn't know Christ to see that Jesus came to address problems of sin and suffering, and you would love to walk alongside him or her and help them to realize those answers. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So connect the gospel. Again, you've got... Uh, unbelieving counselees, believing counselees, right? Connect the gospel to those presentation issues. Every problem in life comes back to the gospel. Skilled biblical counselors know how to connect any life problem back to the gospel, either through those conduits of either sin or suffering. So whether you have an unbeliever who needs Christ, make those connections. You have a Christian. The, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for Christians, right? We, we need Christ every day. We lean on that work every day, and we look to Him for gospel resources to deal with both sin and suffering in those, uh, in those uh, counseling problems. Okay? Are you with me? Is this making sense? All right. Father, thanks for uh, the time to think about the, the glory of the gospel, and I pray that we would become skilled at ministering the gospel to our own hearts in context of sin and suffering and of ministering the gospel to hurting people, whatever challenges and problems they may come with. Lord, we thank you again. We, we know a lot of these things already, but we thank you again for your son and for his work. And we are so thankful that you have um, made a way for us to be reconciled to you and to have new provisions in your spirit and in your son. Uh, to grow and change, to deal with and be transformed in the midst of the problems that we face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.